Good morning, church family. It is so good to see you all today. If this is your first time with us, we are so glad that you are here. Um, we do have a first-time guest tent that's available in the main parking lot. We would love for you to stop by there on your way out if you were not able to do that on your way in. We want to get to know you. We have two things that we want to give you at that tent, by the way. First is a friendly smile, and then second is a gift. And who doesn't want a free gift, right? Uh, so we would love for you to stop by um, just so that we can meet you also so that we could give you that gift. If you were here last weekend, we started a new series called You Are Sent. We're in the gospel, or not the gospel, we're in the book of Acts. That's the fifth book of the New Testament. So if you go ahead and turn there, you got the gospel of Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John, and then the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today, okay? Uh, so go ahead and turn there. But before we get started, um, I have something to tell you, and that is that we're going to do something a little bit different today, all right? We're going to be both teachy and preachy, all right? So I'm going to begin our time together by being teachy. So all of you people who love teaching and education and learning, you're going to be happy and satisfied. And then we're going to end our time together, I'm going to be a little bit preachy. So all of you people who love the preaching side of things, you're going to be happy and satisfied. And somewhere in your Bible, I promise you, it says that the pastor's job is to satisfy all the people, right? Um, so... That, that is not in your Bible, by the way. For some of you, you're like, oh, I didn't know that was there. It's not there. Um, so don't hold that against me. Um, that's God's fault, not mine. Uh, but what I do want you to hear is that we are going to be teaching and preaching, and I think that everyone will be happy and content when we leave. So we're going to be in the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're concluding, or not concluding, but we're going to continue our series in the book of Acts called You Are Sent. All right, so last week we walked through Acts chapter 1. And there are two primary things I said I wanted you to walk away with from Acts chapter 1. The first thing that we said is that the church is a movement. And this is, if you will, a definition of a church that we're using, okay? The church, we're de defining it like this. The church is a movement. Typically, when we think of the church, we think of descriptions, not necessarily definitions. And what does that mean? Well, we think by description, that the church is a building with four walls. It's a place we're going. When someone says to you, where do you go to church? You think immediately off of Highway 42 at a place called Eagles Landing First Baptist Church. That's, what, that's a description of the church building, okay? Another description is the programs that the church offers. Your kids are a part, a part of maybe Camp 323 that we offer in the summer. Maybe it's at a different church called Vacation Bible School. Maybe it's Student Beach Camp that you're familiar with. Those are programs, Saturate, Splash, that we offer on Wednesday night. Equip forums and equip classes that we offer here in the midweek. Life groups, all of those things are descriptions of the church. They're not the definition of the church. So what we did is we defined the church last week by saying the church is a movement. And then we said, what do movements do? They move. Linda was paying attention. All right. You weren't even here. Were you here? She was at home watching online. You know what? She was still present at home. Praise the Lord. Thank you so much. So she was here online and she remembers that movements move. That's not clever, is it? But we should all know that. Okay, so what is a movement? Think of college kids. College kids love movements, like on college campuses. Uh, they love movements, and this is what they do. They get on their campus. They want to see some change on their campus, so they gather together. They present these ideas, 
And then they take those ideas out of the room and they spread them across the campus, okay? So I'm going to go this direction. Linda, you're going to go that direction. Everybody's going to go in a different direction. We're going to spread this idea. So you gather around an idea and then you go and spread that idea. So when we say that the church is a movement, what we're saying is on Sunday mornings, the gathered church body, you're the church, you gather together here, we come together around the idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ, remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and accomplished in our place for us. We celebrate that reality. We did a great job at that this morning. And then what we do is we leave this building six plus days a week and we spread that movement in our neighborhoods, at the grocery store, at the flea market, wherever it is and wherever you go, you're spreading that gospel to people who are in need. That's what the church was intended to do. The church is a movement. That's the definition of the church. But there was a second thing that we said we wanted to remember from last week. Not only is the church a movement, but secondly, we cannot do God's work apart from God's spirit. We cannot do God's work apart from God's spirit. If you remember back in Luke chapter 24, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem until the spirit comes. And when the spirit comes, he will empower you, Acts 1-8, to go and be my witness Literally from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. We can't do God's work apart from God's spirit. The reason many of us get very depleted in our spiritual lives is because we're trying to do the work of God apart from the spirit of God. It's just like your car. You have to fill it up with gas in order for that car to run and to be effective and to do what it was intended to do. And for us as a church, for us as believers in Jesus, we too have to fill our tanks by going inside of the Word, spending time with God in prayer, talking and living our lives in community with other believers, fill our tank so that we can become effective in the ministry that God has called us to do. And what you're going to learn today is that every single believer in Jesus Christ, if you place your faith and your trust in Jesus, if you are a follower of of Jesus Christ, then you are a missionary in the world. So we all have to make sure that our tanks are full so we can do the ministry that God has called us to do. Well, as you can imagine, when Jesus gave this tall task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, that was a daunting thought for the disciples. I mean, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples for just a moment. You have followed Jesus everywhere that he has gone. You have seen Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. You have seen literally demons cast out of people. You have seen people who could not see gain sight. You have seen people who could not hear gain sound. You have seen people who could not do these different things, dead on their bed, now raised to life. You've seen all this stuff that Jesus has done. And then Jesus tells you, I'm about to depart. I'm about to leave the earth. And I'm going to put the hands of this ministry that I have started, I'm going to put that ministry on you. And it's up to you now to take that ministry and to spread it throughout the earth. That is a tall and that is a daunting task. I still remember my very first ministry job. My very first real ministry job was I was a campus missionary at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Any Tar Hill fans? None. (laughs) Imagine All right, so I was a campus missionary there, and I remember thinking, this was with NAM, North American Mission Board, and I remember going to that campus for the first time, and honestly, I was overwhelmed. 
I didn't know where to start. I had no friends on that campus. I didn't go to school at UNC. I didn't even know how to navigate UNC's campus. I knew they had a big hospital. They had the Dean Dome. They had the athletic complex. They have all of these dorms. They have the student center. Like, this place was enormous in size. I couldn't even walk it in a full day, it felt like. But now I just walk on this campus, and I look around, and I see students with their book bags all walking. I'm thinking, I don't even know any of these people. This is a tall task. Well, how do you expect me to win anybody to the Lord? I can't even develop a relationship with these people at this point. Why? Because I don't go to class with them. So I I can't naturally, organically develop any relationships here. Of course, we found a solution to that, and we started I Am Sports and all this different stuff, and through that, I gained some relationships. But that's, that's, that's still overwhelming feeling is what the disciples must have been experiencing here. There are 11 common, ordinary men, and they're going to be responsible for taking the gospel to the very ends of the earth. This is Jesus' way of saying to them, that does overwhelm you. You are going to be 100% dependent on me for this to happen. Don't try to do my work apart from my spirit. You will need the spirit of God in order to accomplish the task I'm calling you to do. So that brings us to Acts chapter 2 today. And as you can imagine, now the, the disciples are still anxiously awaiting the spirit's coming. They're eager in their anticipation. The Holy Spirit's going to arrive on the scene at any moment. And when he does, it's going to be extremely obvious to us all. So this is where the disciples are in Acts chapter 2. Now you and I understand that the Holy Spirit is not arriving in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit existed because he's eternal in nature. He is God. We believe in the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're one God and three persons. But the Holy Spirit was also in existence before creation, at creation, in the Old Testament, and even now coming presently on the earth in the New Testament. And this is going to be different, okay? His presence now is going to be undeniable, We're going to see him in a very real way. Jesus always existed. But when Jesus was born in the little town of Bethlehem, his presence was undeniable to the people who saw him. Okay, And the same thing is true here in many ways in Acts chapter 2. Let's begin reading in verse 1. It says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So the day of Pentecost is here. This is a festival, and this festival required Jews from every nation to pilgrimage into Jerusalem, and they would go through this feast and this festival together. So Jews from all over are coming into Jerusalem, and they're celebrating the day of Pentecost. And then in verse 2 it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now listen, I'm not sure what image comes to your mind when you hear that there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind, okay? But if the image of a guy on a Pantene Pro-V commercial where the wind is blowing and floating his hair back comes to your mind, that is the wrong image, okay? That's not What's happening here? They are not taking glamour shots. They are not putting a fan on the ground and blowing each other's hair back so they can get a good shot. All right, that's not what's happening here. Instead, the wind is so strong, the Bible says, and so powerful that the wind is producing a what? A sound. Do you know anything else that's so strong and so powerful that's wind that produces a sound? A tornado, right? So so it's something 
something similar to that is happening here, we can safely assume. And I know that many of you um, have not experienced a tornado, so honestly, you're not real sure what that's like. Let me give you a more practical example of how we can relate this to our lives and understand what kind of wind was so strong and so powerful that it produced the sound. Um, we're, what, 20 miles south of Hartsville-Jackson International Airport, so many of you are familiar with the jet engine of a plane, Right? Many of you are familiar with that. Like if you were at the beach and they are testing their, their F-15s or whatever they use these days, all the other planes, you know when they fly over your head, you feel the rumble inside of your chest. You hear it because it's extremely loud. If one flew over our church building, it would interrupt all of us because we would know that it was present, right? So let me talk about that for just a moment, okay? The pressure of a jet's engine will literally reverberate every single organ in your body, every single organ. I watched a documentary this week on the jet engine, or the, 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 the jet engine's plane. I don't even know what the documentary was called. But I watched this documentary, and this is where the idea came from. And I want to tell you how powerful these things are, by the way. Okay? So this documentary, what they did is they were testing the power of that, of that particular jet's engine. And what they did is they put the jet on the runway, and they started to slowly taxi the runway. And then, as they were slowly taxiing the runway, they started to crank up the jet's engine um, almost full throttle. They went slowly, but they moved it all the way up to full throttle. And they wanted to see how powerful these things were. They had to make special earphones because as they did that, it was so loud that literally you would lose, like instantly, your, your, uh, your ability to hear. It would cause you to go deaf immediately. It was so loud. So they had to create the, uh, devices that they could wear on their ears to protect against that. All right, and then what they decided to do is they took a standard size car. Okay, think think of an Impala. All right, that's just a standard size car. If you go to what uh, one of the car rental companies, you know, you got compact and you got standard. We're talking about standard here. A standard size car. They took it and they wanted it to go across the runway and to catch the crosswind of the jet's engine. Okay, so it's blowing out, the, the engine is, it's producing this pressure of this wind, and this car is going to come this way and it's going to get hit by the jet's engines win, okay? Mind you, this car, where it is coming in the crosswind of the jet's engine, it is about 100 yards away from the actual jet engine. Why? Because you have the jet engine, then you have the tail of the plane, and then a few you know, extra feet, maybe 30 feet beyond the plane. So now you're about 50 to 70, maybe 80 yards away from the actual jet engine. So 80 yards away from the jet engine, this car starts going across, and as soon as it hits the wind, the wind picks it up and throws it 100 feet. That's how powerful the jet's engine is. Now listen, I'm not sure if on this particular day, if the wind that was happening was more like the power of a jet engine, or if it was more like the power of or tornado. But what I do know is this that when you encounter a wind that is that strong, it causes you to do nothing more and nothing less than to hit the ground and curl up and feel as small as a little roly-poly. And that's how these guys felt. Whatever just happened was very obvious. If you were present that day, you knew that something was happening. And now here in Acts 2, this is what's happening. There's not a single person in the town who would deny that something happened that day. And we're not even done yet. Look at verse 3. It says, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them 
and rested on each one of them. We just went from crazy to crazy, crazy. It's kind of like in-laws. You got crazy in-laws. You got crazy, crazy in-laws. Now, not mine. Mine are great. I'm still trying to get that pool. They're awesome. They're They're amazing. But, you know, we went from crazy to crazy, crazy. I mean, I want you to think about this church family. It's a significant moment in Scripture because when the presence of God shows up in the Old Testament, he almost always did so through fire. When God called Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, how did God show up to Moses? He did so in a burning bush through what? Through fire. Think about this. When God guided Israel in their exodus from slavery, he did so with a cloud by day and a, and a fire by night. When God descended on Mount Sinai and called Moses on that mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, how did God descend on the mountain? The Bible says he descended in fire. And not only that, but the whole mountain trembled violently when he descended. When God called Isaiah to be a prophet, Isaiah 6, many of you are aware of it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know that verse. And then Isaiah comes back and says, here my Lord, send me. You know that. Isaiah 6, when God called Isaiah to be a prophet and to go speak the mission of God over his people, the Bible says what filled the temple? Smoke. What consumed the altar? Fire. When fire suddenly appeared like this, these Jews understood two things. One, This means the presence of God. So whatever's happening here, we know that God is apparently present. And the second thing that they understood was the movement of God. Because every time God presented himself in that way, Moses to the burning bush, I'm calling you to go do something. Israelites, I'm calling you to go do something. And then even Isaiah, I'm calling you to go do something. Not only was God present, but he was calling them to a particular purpose, and that is his mission. So there are two things they understood. That God now is present, but not only is he present, but he's calling us to be a part of a movement. Listen, the same thing's true here. The men and women in this text, they understood that through the Holy Spirit's presence, now he's with them in a very unique way. And and because the presence of God's now with them, the power of the Holy Spirit is upon them. They're going to be able to do the things that God had called them to do, which is namely pushing the mission of God forward. And then we continue in verse 4. It says this, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what do you see here? You see the Spirit comes, they speak. 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 Why am I saying that over and over again? Because this is the pattern of what's happening. When the Spirit comes upon them, they begin to speak. And God begins to work. That's what's happening here, the Bible, or when, we, when they speak, the Bible says they're speaking, though, in other tongues and other languages. Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. Remember, this is Pentecost. Some from Jews from all over have come in. This is, uh, uh, they're coming to celebrate the Passover. And just to give you a little bit of history here, how this would work is you had Passover. And then after Passover, you had the Festival of Weeks, which was really throughout seven weeks, seven days, seven days a week. How many is seven times seven? 
49, and then it would end with the day of Pentecost, okay? And that's what this day is. So this, this festival didn't just start happening last night. Like, this festival has been going on for weeks. So they're all there. They're all gathered. They're all in this place. They all are experiencing this. And it says, every, from every nation under heaven, and at the sound, we talked about that a moment ago, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. I want you to underline that if you write in your Bible. They were hearing them speak in his own language. These men that were coming to town were perplexed, the Bible says. These men that were coming to town were puzzled by what was happening in the town. They heard these people who didn't even know their language. All of a sudden, they're starting to speak their language. Only God can do something like that. Only God. This was not gibberish. They weren't just throwing out different syllables and trying to combine things and say things in hopes that something would happen. They were literally speaking an actual language that they did not know. That's what's so powerful about this. The Spirit enabled them to speak a very real and actual language that they had never learned and they were never educated on. Now, how is this possible? Watch what they say in verse 7. It says, And they were amazed and they were astonished. And then it goes on to say, aren't not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each one of us, our own native language? You know what I hear in this verse, Dr. Hahn? It's as if they're saying, aren't these people from Alabama? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a little close to home, ain't it, Mike? I see Mike over there ducking his head. It's like, it's like that, like, they don't know any other language. They only know their own language, right? Like, that's what they're saying. Aren't these people from Galilee? These are Galileans. They don't know anybody else's language. These are fishermen. I mean, the only thing that they know is beef jerky and lake water. How are they out here, of all people, speaking a different language? That's essentially exactly what it says. Then verse 9 says, it's going to label all the countries that are there. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. If you literally put this on a map, what you're going to see is you're coming from the north, the south, the east, and the west, covering really everywhere. Pretty fascinating. And then verse 11 says both Jews and proselytes. Jews, as you know, are God's people from Israel. And then when you come to this word proselytes, they're not from God's people, but they had converted to Judaism. So now they're in the circle too. And then it says Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. I want you to imagine this morning. That if someone from Japan flew in and had a business meeting in Atlanta and thought, hey, we're, we see some people pulling in this parking lot, we're going to go check out what's going on. They don't know how to speak English. They are completely fluent in Japanese, but they don't know how to speak English. And then they come and they just sit in like, we're just going to watch because we don't understand what they're saying. And then maybe you had someone from China do the same thing, someone from Russia, someone from Germany. So they got these four different countries that are in this room. And while we speak, while I'm talking, they're hearing things in their own language. Only the act of God could do that. 
And that's what's happening. But what things are they hearing them actually say? It says that they're hearing them declare the mighty acts of God back to them, reminding them that God of heaven created a perfect world, that we as men and women existed in perfect harmony with him. But in Genesis chapter 3, we decided to be God ourselves. We deliberately disobeyed him. And then the gospel comes forth that we had to have a remedy. Someone come, die in our place, die for our sins, so that we could be reconciled back to God. And that happened through the person of Jesus Christ. And these people who have never heard this language are hearing this gospel in their own language, and they're amazed at the works of God. And that's what the Bible says is happening here. It says, and all were amazed and perplexed. This is the absolute best day of Pentecost they have ever experienced. They do this every year, but this year was different. It says, saying to one another, what does this mean? And then you had a few people in the crowd who were saying, I'll tell you what it means. That table's drunk. <laughs> they had a little bit too much fun last night. Those people, they can't even speak right. That's what they're saying. Man, they, they must have been drinking on that new wine. They're always going to have that mocker in the crowd, aren't you? That's my teachiness. Now we're going to start being a little preachy, okay? This is what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. There's two things in light of this text I want you to walk away with this morning. First one is this. The Holy Spirit is the gift given to all believers. The Holy Spirit is the gift given to all believers. Be cautious. Don't refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. He's not an it. He's as much God as God the Father, and he's as much God as God the Son. He deserves to be addressed as a he, not an it, okay? But, it, but, but the Holy Spirit is a gift that's given to all believers. This is Jesus' gift to his church. This is the greatest gift that Jesus could ever give. Why? Because this is Jesus giving us himself. I was blessed to grow up with phenomenal grandparents. Man, I had phenomenal grandparents. My mom and my dad are here today. They will attest to that reality that I have phenomenal grandparents. You know, one of the things I can still remember vividly is some of the sights and sounds that came with my grandparents. I still remember going to their home and what it smelled like getting in their car and what it smelled like. I still remember when I would hug my meemaw and she'd kiss me on the cheek, what it felt like for that to happen. I still remember walking the mall with my papa and eating hot dogs at the hot dog stand. Like, I remember these things. I see these things. They're forever embedded in who I am. There was one night, almost 20 years ago, maybe 20 years ago now, that both my Papa Jay and my papa, my Papa Jay was my dad's dad, my papa was my mom's dad, they died on the same evening. Tell that story a different day. It was a tough night. And I remember we buried them Time goes on a few weeks later, and my grandma gives my mom to give me my papa's Bible that I'll hold and cherish forever. I get to flip through that Bible and see what God was teaching my papa, and I remember begging from the age, I, mean, I don't even know how old I was in fourth grade, but that age, when I was in fourth grade, I remember begging my papa, or my papa Jay, I want a piece of flack. He got shot in war, and it was hung in his book bag, and it caught his book bag on fire. They put it out, and he kept the little flack that was in his book bag. And I used it as a part of a, 
a project in elementary school, and I begged him. I wanted that from him. I wanted him to give me that. And, of course, when my Papa Jay passed away, my Mima gave that piece of flack to my dad to later give to me. These things mean something to me. They're sentimental. They're, they have value to me. But as much value as they bring, I would be willing instantaneously to give those things back if I could have one more walk around the mall and share a hot dog with my papa. If I could go to the lake and pick one more plum off the tree with my Papa Jay. Why? Because their presence to me is much more than anything else the world can give me. And in many ways, when you come to the book of Acts, Jesus is saying to the disciples, I'm leaving this earthly home, and I'm ascending back to the right hand of God. I am leaving you. But here's the beauty of the gospel. When I leave you, you don't have to fear because I'm still going to be with you. Here's the deal, though. I'm not going to be walking beside you. Now I'm coming to take residence inside you. So no matter where you go or what you do, I will always be with you through the power of my spirit. Yes, you can clap at that. That's worth celebrating. But listen to what he's saying. He said in John, it's good for you that I go. The reason it's good for you that I go is because there's, no, there's another coming, and he's going to comfort you when you're afflicted. He's going to comfort you when you're navigating through life's most difficult circumstances. The other that's coming, he's a guide. He will walk you through the waters of the, uh, of the terrestrial things that you have to walk through in your life. He's not only a comforter and a guide, but he's a counselor. When you walk through things that don't make sense to you, the Spirit of God will counsel you through those things. The only reason, church, that you know know that there's a gulf between you and God and you absolutely need Jesus to fill that gulf is because the Holy Spirit illuminates that to you, that truth to you, and causes you to cry out back to him. We need the Spirit and he's a gift that's given to us at the hands of Christ Jesus. He comes, but he won't walk beside you. He will live inside of you. In church family, he will live inside of you forever. So if you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, there's one emphatic truth you must cling to, and that is this, every single believer in Jesus is a missionary. You're a missionary. And yes, when you think of your neighborhood and you've got to reach it, that overwhelms you, like a 21-year-old stepping on the campus of UNC thinking he has to win it. That overwhelms you like three fishermen or 11 fishermen from Galilee being tasked to go reach the world. When you think of your workplace and all the challenges it presents, and you think, God, you want me to reach them, that's hard. But Jesus says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to empower you with everything you need to win people to Jesus Christ for me. And that's the beauty of the gospel. You indeed are a missionary. You've been empowered with the Holy Spirit. The church was never intended to be an audience who gathers around a few songs and a decent sermon. The church was always intended to be an army. We are not an audience. Say that. We are not an audience. We are an army. And church, we are an army on mission together. And that is to make the glory of God go forth. So the first thing I want you to see is the Holy Spirit is a gift given to all believers. The second and final thing is this. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive all of him. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive all of him. I want, you to, I want to tell you one of the 
things you dislike about preaching, okay? One of my jobs that I don't like is to cause you to face a little bit of conflict with maybe what you've been taught and what Scripture actually teaches. To experience the tensions of, man, I've always thought this was to be true, but then to learn the actual truth according to God's Word, okay? So that's the tension, the conflict I want you to face real quick this morning. I'm going to make a bold statement. I want you to try to follow with it. Here it is. You do not need a second baptism, but you do need a second birth to receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? Some of you have heard what I would consider erroneous theology, where you need a second baptism. No, the Spirit of God comes upon you at the moment of your conversion. When you give yourself to Jesus, he gives all of himself to you through the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have time to go deep there. We are going to resource you this week with more that you can read on that, okay? Look at verse 2. It says this, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And watch, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. You know what that word filled actually translates as? Literally means every square inch of the house was filled. Now, let's suppose that they were in the upper room because that's where most believe that they were. So they're in the upper room, they're with Jesus, and every, or the Spirit comes, and every single square inch of the house is now filled with the Holy Spirit. That means every crumb on the floor is filled with the Spirit, every cabinet, every drawer, every single inch, square inch of this house, this room, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, flip over to verse 4. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So not only was the house filled, but they were filled. And this same word is being used to help us understand that every square inch of them was filled with the Holy Spirit at this particular point. Every square inch, not a vein, not a vessel that lacked the Holy Spirit of God, not a cell, not a chamber that lacked the Spirit of God. He filled them from head to toe, completely filled them. But here's the question. He gave you all of himself when he filled you with the Spirit. My question to you is how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? You might have all of him, but my question to you is how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? You see, what I've learned in my life is this, that it is very easy for a preacher like me to stand on this stage and to be surrendered in 99% of the things of my life. It is very easy for men and women like you who know Jesus and try to walk with Jesus on a daily basis to allow him to have 99% of your life and cling tightly to that 1% that you're unwilling to give up. My question to you is, how much of you this morning does the Holy Spirit have? So you can give him 99% of yourself and still cling tightly to that 1%. What do you mean, Trey? I can be faithful in every area of my life. I can get up and read my Bible. I can study Scripture and try to memorize it. I can pray with my kids before they go to bed. I can pray you know, with people at the church. I can uh, serve in different capacities at the church. I can do all these things. 99% I'm sold out. And not give. Conflict. Not give why? Well, inflation. Man, 
Groceries cost more than they've ever cost, and gas costs more than it's ever cost. So I got to hold on to that 1%. I want to teach you something that I learned a long time ago that has radically changed the way I do a lot of things, and hopefully it will radically change you too. Listen to this statement. Sometimes the greatest act of faith is your faithfulness. Just being faithful where you are. Sometimes that's the greatest act of faith. Well, Lord, you gave me 100 bucks. It's yours. You asked me to give the first fruits back to you, which is 10%. So I'm going to give that 10% back to you. Now I got 90 bucks. Gas costs this. Groceries cost this. I'm not real sure how I'm going to make it. Sometimes the greatest act of your faith is just being faithful. By the way, when you are faithful, you're giving God room to move. Now you can say, Lord, because of my budgeting, I was able to afford gas and groceries and everything else this week. Or you can say, I don't know how you did it, God, (laughs) but I was able to get everything I needed supplied this week because I was faithful to you. There's a tremendous difference between the two. 99% of me can be in, and and, and then maybe maybe I hold to the 1% of not sharing the gospel. That's not that big of a sin. It's not hurting anybody. So I'm not going to share the gospel. Maybe all of you... 99% of you is given to the Lord, but there's another part of you where you're not serving. You're not active in the life group, existing in community the way that God exists in community and doing the things actually that God has called you to do. Here's what I want you to to think about this morning, okay? There's going to come a point maybe today, maybe tomorrow morning, where you stand at your sink and you brush your teeth. As you brush your teeth, you're going to glance at yourself in the mirror. All of us are. I'm going to do this. There might come a time today when I'm leaving lunch, I look in the window of a car that's parked beside mine, and I might see my own reflection in that window. But there's going to come a point in the rest of the day, maybe even tomorrow morning, where you're going to see the reflection of your face. And when you do, by the Spirit's power, I hope that you'll stop and ask yourself this important question. God has given all of his Holy Spirit to me. Trey, Have I given all of myself to the Holy Spirit? And I hope and I pray that we as a church with integrity will be able to answer that in a way that both honors God and honors ourselves. Here's what I've learned from Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit, when he comes, makes a difference. Does he not? Do you remember when, I'm out of time, but do you remember when Moses was called by God in the burning bush. The bush was not consumed, but it was on fire. When you read this text correctly, the people are consumed with fire, but they're not burning. It says the fire was on them. Well, what, what difference does it make? The Holy Spirit of God makes a difference. But here's what you need to hear. Not only if you believe emphatically that the Holy Spirit of God makes a difference, here's the second thing you need to hear. The outsider can detect that difference. Your neighbors, your coworkers, the people you're praying for on that wall, they know if you're really surrendered to Jesus. They know if the Holy Spirit is on you and in control of your life. And you might think, you know what, this is an area of my life that nobody will ever know about. Trust me, you're not as clever as you think because there's only one set of eyes that actually matter anyway, and that's God's, and he sees every single thing you do. So Father, we come to you this morning And we pray that you will help us be men and women who are not only full of the Holy Spirit, 
but every aspect of our lives are surrendered to you. We can only do this through your power. We can only do this if you enable us to do it through the power of your spirit. God, have all of us. We're here to serve you. We're here to love you. We're here to do the work that you've called us to do. And we can't be dependent on ourselves to do it because nothing would happen. We don't want to do your work apart from your spirit. So have your way, oh God. Use us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.